Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have our friend, PC Gaming Arbiter Elegantia. Console. You wish. Right? Mm, That means you're currently reigning. Like, (laughs) at best, maybe you're a pro console, but honestly, I'm not sure you're far enough along the Cursus and Orem to to really claim that. I think the best we can hope for uh, for you, Rowan, is is maybe a, a a small little governorship in like Bithynia. But I just thought it'd be funny to be the PC gaming console because it rhymes or it's a homophone with the thing that keep PC gaming. Oh, is I thought against. you were actually saying console. No, okay. I'm saying both. He's it's, trying it's to a, make wordplay. It, it's a joke. It is a pun or a play on words. Well, it is playful. I'll give you that. <laughs> All right. Well, the whimsy, the whimsy never stops uh, here in the 3MA intro. All right. Well, Michael's Uh, going to delete a minute here. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we also welcome back our friend uh, freshly returned from Scandia. 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Actually, it's been almost two weeks now since I've been in Sweden. But uh, it seems like you just left though. It always does. You know, it's. That's one of the. I go and I feel like I'm there forever, and I come back and I want to go back again. I'm almost running out of Swedish chocolate, though. So clearly, I've. So you definitely need to return. Yeah. Very soon. No, it seems like it was. It was like just the other day when uh, I was getting pictures from uh, that that whiskey bar in in Stockholm. Everyone misses you and thinks you should come back. Well, I definitely miss everybody, and I definitely miss that bar. Uh, so we should we should try and make that happen. For listeners, this is the Oxen, which is a very good whiskey bar uh, in Stockholm, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great bar, and it has a it has a ton of uh, t- ton of great scotches that you don't normally see. Three of A uh, is brought to you by whiskey. Always, it's just we're yeah. we're announcing it today. We finally got that sponsorship. <laughs> uh, it finally came through. Uh, anyway. Uh, so this week we're going to be talking about Field of Glory 2 from Byzantine Games. And uh, Troy, why don't you, because I think you're the person who's played the most of this series. I never played the original Field of Glory. And as I understand, there's also a Field of Glory, like, Ancients tabletop system. And I'm curious if the two are related, if this is inspired by that. Uh, take us through a little bit of the, the background uh, on this uh, series. Yeah, it's actually a bit of an interesting uh, story here. Um, it is based on, Field of Glory is based is a miniatures rule system, which was designed by the McNeil brothers who uh, founded Slytherin Games. They are uh, world champion miniature war gamers in the DBA, DBM uh, system. Uh, eventually they grew tired of that system, so they designed their own war game system, which became Field of Glory. It's for tabletop miniatures. It is um, in some ways, apparently, um, easier to understand than DBA, DBM. Uh, not quite as much as Pulse of Battle, but it has a nice middle ground there. And then a few years ago, the Slytherin guys decided they'd make a, an ancient a computer game based on their miniature system, which was Field of Glory. Now, this was probably the first turn-based uh, ancient battle game since really uh, the Great Battles of History series from iMagic, which everyone knows I'm a huge, huge fan of. Um, it was, I mean, relatively popular, but mostly I think for, you know, dearth of options. It was either that or whatever HPS simulations was putting out. Um, 
I know that we talked about the, their games in an earlier show, uh, their Ancients games and the problems with the clarity and the menus. Uh, because this is a, it's a turn-based game with, you should, based on miniatures, it's very, very clear what you're doing. You're moving the units across the map. It's a flexible system. Um, the Field of Glory had eventually, I think, seven expansions. Uh, the first game came out, and just like Field of Glory 2, was focused on the late Republic and the armies around the late Republic. But by the end, it was everything from Alexandrian armies all the way up to uh, the late Middle Ages. Um, because, you know, there's not a whole lot of things you need to change in the system until you get to, you know, really the 17th, 18th century. Then things really start to change uh, as far as tactics are concerned. So you have, so Field of Glory comes out, and it's expanded on, expanded on. Uh, does very, very well. And, but this isn't made by Slytherin. This isn't made by the McNeil brothers or their team. This is right. made by Byzantine Games. Now, Byzantine Games are, uh, they're, I think they were originally a mod team for Pike and Shot, uh, which is going to be talked about in an earlier show. It is, uh, once again, a Slytherin Matrix published game about Pike and Musket uh, warfare in the, from, you know, the 14th century uh, onwards. And they worked, Byzantine Games, or the team that became Byzantine Games, worked on the campaigns uh, version of Pike and Shot, introduced campaigns to that system, which was really just tying a bunch of battles together. There's not really a strategic uh, layer to it. It's a bunch of tactical battles that are strung together with some carryover in units. And we see that system in Field of Glory too, and maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and then they made Sengoku Jedi, which was the Japanese version of Pike and Shot. I didn't have you know the variety of units of Pike and Shot, but then again, you have Pike and you have Shot. There's only so much you can really, really do uh, when you name, name your game that. And I guess you have some archers too. Uh, it was a quite good uh, Japanese uh, war game, I think. Uh, the castle battles were always very, very interesting with really big on fortifications and sieges, um, some really neat stuff with cavalry going on. Um, and... As tends to be the case with both Field of Glory and with community games like this, like Field of Glory and Pike and Shot and Sengoku Jedi both led to an explosion of community scenarios and community campaigns. Um, some well done, some not. But there's and that's something that here we are only a few days after the Field of Glory 2 release, and I've already downloaded like seven community scenarios I want to try. Um, and a couple of campaigns. So this, because of, this is something, because these battles are generally relatively small, it doesn't take a lot of time for a skilled editor to, you know, go through the books, go through the encyclopedia, and put together a decent historical battle. Uh, and I think that was one reason why Field of Glory lasted as long as it did in the community and in the Ancients Wargame community. And now we have Field of Glory 2, which is a significant upgrade uh, to Field of Glory 1 in a number of ways. We'll get into that. And it's kind of... Someone, a friend asked me on Twitter uh, the other day, so how is it so far? And I had a preface saying... You know I have this bias about Ancients games, um, but and I and I do, but I know I'm bad when I see it. And so far, I'm very, very pleased with what I'm seeing in Field of Glory 2, with a few minor caveats. So there's the short history of how we got here. And uh, 
So, Rowan, I want to turn to you a little bit because um, I want I wanted to ask you, you know, what you make of its approach to trying to get what the, what this system views as the essential facets of uh, ancients warfare, uh, because to an extent, I, I do feel this is very much uh, operating in the uh, Pike and Shot mold. I'm not I'm not sure if you if you play that I, one. I've not played that one. Pike and Shot's entire deal was it was sort of about uh, army cohesion, about chain reactions of uh, uh, of misfortune and breakdowns of order uh, within an army. And I very much feel this one is is kind of operating uh, in, in the same you know in the same vein. And I I do find it kind of interesting that you know as that it, it's it's starting it's it's taking. Ancient warfare, going back to you know the the early Roman period, uh, and then and then pretty far, pretty pretty late into uh, into the Roman era, into into the empire, um, and as Troy says, it doesn't have a view. It, it, the the series doesn't seem to think warfare changes all that much between. Uh, the Roman era and and the Renaissance, and I'm curious, you know, whether you, like whether you find that take convincing, whether this this feels authentic to you, or or whether this one size fits all approach doesn't really sing for you. Uh, I think that there's one specific thing that this game does that does make it feel like uh, good, solid ancient warfare, and that's when you get two units together into melee, they just kind of stick there until. Actually, it could be more than two. Um, you can have you can have multiple units attacking the same unit, but as long as they're in melee, they'll just stick there and fight for a long time. So it becomes about like trying to move around the flanks, hit them with cavalry, and so on. And you know, you read about uh, the legions and the the uh, phalanxes and all these different heavy infantry units that basically just get stuck in until something happens around them so i think that there is i mean there's a lot of what you're describing with the unit cohesion and the chain reactions too but i think that's that's the thing that really gives it the uh, flavor of an ancient battle that feels like what i want an ancient battle to feel like um you know, something like Kinei, uh, you have the sort of infantry pull back, get the engagement until the cavalry can do its dirty work on the flanks. Uh, and, that you know, that's the whole model of the phalanxes and the, the uh, Alexander the Great's idea. So I think that, you know, it's it's getting the simple version of what I would want an ancient battle to feel like. The thing that I felt that it uh, reminded me of, other than the Great Battles of History series that Troy was talking about, but... It plays fast and fun in a way that's kind of like a turn-based total war game. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it has that feel of this is you know the broad strokes of what an ancient battle can be like, and you can get it done pretty quickly. Um, not as fast as a total war game, but I think that uh, uh, that's that was the initial kind of reaction I had was this is a good fast and fun tactics. Yeah, something that I, I do find myself appreciating here, and I'll, I'll have to go back and, and replay some Pike and Shot to figure out why I'm having this sort of uh, qualitatively different reaction, is with Pike and Shot, maybe, maybe it's that Pike and Shot scenarios just were generally a little smaller, maybe they felt a little more confined, but a lot of times I felt like uh, 
your average pike and shot battle kind of felt like the proverbial knife fight in a phone booth. Uh, you had very limited maneuvering options uh, before, like you know, the, the battle was joined, and uh, your 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 dispositions had kind of committed the battle to a certain to a certain shape. And uh, it didn't feel that there was a ton of flexibility as as commander uh, within that. It was very much that that game frequently felt to me like it was it was very much about like who are you going to target with the most volleys, right? Like there's there's four units in, in a line here, and if you pick the wrong one to target, you're going to lose the battle. But if you pick the right one, you can like trigger this chain reaction and, and really start and really start a route. Uh, with Field of Glory, a lot of these scenarios feel a little more open to me, and that's true of both the uh, epic battles, which are sort of the pre-made. Uh, historical battles, as well as the uh, the quick battles, which are sort of procedurally generated uh, quick throwaway battles, which uh, are uneven, as you might expect from a random battle generator, uh, but still seemed surprisingly decent uh, by that standard. Uh, but it feels like a lot in a lot of these battles, and this is the part I suppose that resonates with me. Uh, a lot of times. You know what you're saying about units getting stuck together. It also feels very much like, as commander in these battles, um, the last move is re- is is really the key here, right? That like there's a lot of time. I find myself my patience being tested a, a lot more by this game because if you move too early, if you start like swinging your units out on a flank march or like you know s- you know signal the assault and 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 send your your units forward. Uh, you really are committed to something pretty irrevocable uh, at that point. And so there's a lot of times in this battle where, in in this game, where you're sort of watching battles unfold and just trying to see what shape they're going to take because only then can you really make your final commitments. Uh, and I find that a very... It's, it's a cool thing to experience as just from a wargaming perspective because that is such a critical part of uh you know ancients and warfare all the way all the way up really through the napoleonics um but the other thing is i don't think there's a ton of war games that really emphasize uh tactical passivity you know there's there's very few war there's there's not a lot of war games i think that that really sort of make the point that uh, sometimes the commander's art is knowing when to when to do nothing. Yeah, and one one thing I really like about uh, Field of Glory two compared to Field of Glory one, I think, is how different so many of the units feel. Um, like in Field of Glory one, skirmishers were just kind of a nuisance, and you'd mm-hmm. chase them away and they'd be gone. They're actually really really useful and important in Field of Glory two. They have they can do quite a bit of damage, which is fine. But they can pass through. Uh, they don't just stand there and, and get wait to get routed. They can retreat back through your forward lines. So they're not useful anymore. Great, get rid of them, move them out of the way, and they're not, they don't have to take a special path. They can just kind of disperse and melt right through, which makes it instead of you know thinking, oh my god, how do I get these slingers out of the way so I can march my legion forward? You keep your slingers there, and then you just pull them back. And maybe they'll be useful again later, maybe they won't. But they're not a burden on you. They're actually a unit you'll want to use strategically and tactically at the right moment. Um, I look at the different legion types. Um, Units are ranked from, you know, based on their skill, 
But there, you, know, you can generate you'll generate a scenario and you'll get you know a bunch of veteran legions, then a couple of raw recruit loser legions. And this these might be the most important guys, but you can't use them to start. You can't open your battle with your losers. But you know these units are here and they're expensive. You know they're more expensive than you know a lot of metal middle infantry are. But you can't trust them. So it's about okay, where do I where do I deploy these? It's it's planning the battle ahead and the deployment, looking at the terrain and thinking where the battle is going to take place and when you can use these guys, because you can only use them as Rowan said, when the other infantry's all tied up. Then you can bring these guys around for a flank maneuver and then great. Um, but there is a real feeling of brittleness to untrained units, um, more so than there was in uh, Field of Glory 1. Now, maybe it's because it's just a much better looking game. It is such an improvement visually over both the Pike and Shot games uh, <coughs> and Field of Glory 1. Um, but I, I do feel there's a huge difference in a lot of the, the, the Gallic warbands. I mean, they got to be nerfed. These guys are super <laughs> overpowered because their charge is just brutal. So I see myself lined up against some superior warbands. That makes me rethink the entire battle. Um, I don't know if they do need to be nerfed because. But the the thing is, that's their only play. They've got they've got a monstrous haymaker, and that is the only thing they can do. And if it lands. Uh, it's really effective, and so yeah, you always have to be like keeping an eye on the Gallic Warband. But as someone who's commanded more than a few uh, Gallic Warbands in my time with this game, uh, the problem that I encounter with them is unless they manage to like land that epic flank charge, what ends up happening is they end up stuck in the middle of the line, doubtless ending up in the most critical point of the battle. And it turns out they're pretty much crap at holding the line. Yeah, but that, uh, in, but that charge, in the push, they're man, bad. Yeah, I mean, and 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 in this game, unlike Field of Glory One, units get pushed back. They can lose an encounter and not lose cohesion points, not you know be disrupted or fragmented, but can just lose ground to be pushed back. So there is a sense that the line is dynamic, um, which is really nice to see. Um, something you didn't see even in the great battles of history games where you only, yeah. a unit would only retreat if it was you know broken or damaged here you know units are hurt and they pull back and that creates opportunities so there's a real dynamism uh to the battle even when uh, units are being you know locked together in death combats still nerf warbands dude <laughs> yeah the uh the way that things get pushed back and broken apart because of terrain really gives the the battles a mm -hmm. feel a, a feel of dynamism that I think uh, makes the ancient setting more interesting because you know you kind of see why this is after the the heyday of the uh, of the phalanx and you can kind of see why that is the case because they're really slow they can't they basically only go forward as soon as they get out of their lines you know you you have the ability to just tear them up with cavalry or even light infantry um, and i think there's a none of the battles that i've done have been like the lines clash and then i whoever wins the cavalry wins it there's always you know something going on in the center of the field beyond uh just waiting for the and numbers to pop up that someone won or lost. Phalanx are considered unmaneuverable, which in this game rule set means that they don't get a free 45-degree turn. 
Most units in this game, if they're within range of a commander at least, get a free 45-degree turn to change their facing. We should hang on. Uh, real quick, this is a square grid. Uh, based game. Yes. And yeah. so you can look at the points of the square or you can look at a side of the square. Right. Uh, and so you get to freely, if you're in command for an, an, a typical unit, you get to make a little half a little half turn, a, uh, a facing turn like that, a facing adjustment right. uh, for free. Yeah, it doesn't cost you any action points. Unless your unit is out of command range or is an untrained bunch of jerks like, like rabble, warbands. rabble, Gallic warbands, um, untrained legions, or you're a phalanx. So you have these really powerful lines of spears, which can do quite a bit of damage, and you know they can outlast uh, an average cohort if all things being equal. But they can't change their facing uh, without. And, and then also do an attack. They can't change their facing and make a, a step or make a charge. They have to wait for their next turn, which I think is a great way of demonstrating uh, the inflexibility of the phalanx without taking away from its fighting power, which I think was one of the problems that the Great Battles of History series had. It had all the brittleness of the phalanx, but none of the fear of the phalanx. Um, I got a little bone to pick. Uh, with with the way the phalanxes are working though, um, yeah. And okay, and maybe to an extent, like to a degree, the heyday of the phalanx is done. Uh, it's already kind of a corrupted concept because the Macedonian phalanx has arrived, which takes the beautiful elegance of the hoplite phalanx and replaces it with, what if the sticks were just really fucking long? Uh, okay, but, this is this is the good stuff here. Yeah, <laughs> but. One of the other things that happens to phalanxes in this game is they don't handle broken terrain well. Uh, they, they really need a flat table, uh, basically, to, to do their best work. Uh, if, they, if they go over uh, broken ground, they get a disrupted penalty. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm 100% with you. Like, phalanxes aren't going to climb a mountain. They're not light infantry. They're not, they're not forest rangers. They're not, they're not going to be like doing skirmishing in, in the woods. I'm there with you. But the phalanx originates from Greece. And you know what Greece has a lot of? Rocky Olive oil. trails. Oh. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but these phalanxes, it's like, oh no, there's, there's, there's stones in the road. And the whole thing comes to a halt. And I'm like, come on, guys. The phalanx had to have been a little better than that, right? Like, just like put on some better shoes and we'll get this done. Uh, but I, like I'm having fits here, trying to maneuver these phalanx lines around what basically appear to be like you know gravel paths. Yeah, you know, I mean that's kind of what the sources say. The sources are always a mess, of course. But you know, especially you know by the time you get to the uh, late Roman Republic, you have the really huge super phalanxes uh, that the Macedonians had, which not only had big fucking six, but were just really, really deep and very immobile. Um, they just added more sticks and more dudes. Um, kind of along the Theban model, I guess, of yeah, just That, that was Epaminondas' uh, innovation, which was, what if more? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was before wow. Alexander. So he's a so, modder. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Epaminondas did create a campaign game for Thebes, uh, which it had never had before, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, but in no time at all, the Theban franchise had been pretty resoundingly canceled. Um, uh, so, uh, that's kind of, and the, the Battle of Sinocephaly was allegedly won because, you know, the phalanx tripped on some broken ground and a cohort took advantage of it. Um, but yeah, there is, the maps are kind of weird and that they're, the way that they're laid out, I mean, they're, you, when you choose a map in a custom battle, for example, um, you can choose you know, agricultural or desert or hills or mountains, what have you. And their agricultural maps always have like a bunch of houses, which are shorter than the dudes. They're shorter than your soldiers and some fields and scattered trees and not really, you know, a nice little flat plain. Um and there were enough there are there were enough flat plains in Greece to fit a few thousand men. Um so, so maybe a little more a few more boring uh maps wouldn't hurt. But the terrain does add for some interesting uh things that sometimes force you to have um uh, to adjust your tactics. Now I did see in the load up tips, you know, games always have these load up tips now. That apparently, even if you are attacking a unit, I've never heard anything more Andy Rooney from Troy than games always have these load up tips now. Yeah, especially since he works for Paradox. We have the best load up tips. <laughs> um, if you are attacking a unit that is in that is in rough, disordering ground, and your unit would suffer the same penalty, it gets a disordered penalty as well for that combat. So. My phalanx mm. could be standing on grass, and yours could be standing in a quarry. If I choose to take the battle to the quarry, I get the disordered penalty as well. So mm -hmm. that's something to think about, I guess. I don't know. I actually like while like while I do sort of uh, get frustrated at how fragile uh, my my phalanxes can be, and let's not even get into the elephants. Um, I do actually like the way terrain works in this system. For, for one thing, I think this game does a really great job of feeling like a good minis game. Mm -hmm. uh, terrain is like simple, it's readable, its effects are uh, pronounced and, and, and dramatic. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy about this is it's forcing you to... A lot of the armies that you, that you have in this, in this game... Uh, with the exception of, I would say, the Roman armies tend to have more of a, a set template uh, that you're working with is, is how it feels. But, like, you know, a Carthaginian army or a Macedonian army always feels like this grab bag. Uh, it's it's kind of just, you know, somebody stuck their hand uh, in there and just whatever ancient units they could fish out uh, from the Mediterranean, that's that's what you've got. You, whatever minis were on sale, they made, a, <laughs> they made a Carthaginian army out of that. Yeah. Um, and so what's interesting there is you really do need to figure out how to set these units up to succeed. Uh, and that is very dependent on terrain. So like you can have units that will actually be pretty effective, uh, from, uh, coming out of a forest, uh, for instance, that, that you know, it's, it's actually going to be helpful. They can, they can maneuver through it. Okay. They can attack out of it. Okay. Uh, and, and they're good at sort of close range melee combat. And then there's other units like the Phalanx that really need like open flat ground 
to, to really succeed. Uh, there's units that are going to handle hills uh, better than others. And what I enjoy about all of this is it does sort of feel like there's uh, this... You both have to read the terrain and the effects it's going to have on the battle. But then you also really need to think about how each specific unit uh, in your battle, in your in your line of battle, is going to interact with that terrain. Uh, and and that might seem like really basic to war games, but I think what's different here is that the effects are so drastic uh, in terms of in terms of what they what they do to units. Like phalanxes basically can't uh, go into can't go through a force. It just isn't going to work. Um, Light infantry, like uh, you know, span. Uh, what are the Spanish uh, legion-like uh, Scutari? Yeah, yeah, Scutari are actually very good uh, at, at that sort of like uh, infiltrate, those sort of infiltration tactics. Uh, I've I found um, the other thing to, to bear in mind is like line of sight rules are really punishing here. Uh, forests mm-hmm. are basically just black holes of intelligence. Like you can be really unpleasantly surprised by what is lurking just on the other side of basically a tree line. Um, And these are all things you have to bear in mind. And the effects are also drastic and stark. And so like pinned to specific variables that I think in a lot of war games that try to be high fidelity, there are so many different factors like being mediated all at once that it can kind of feel like, the effect overall is is beige, I guess is the way yeah. I'd put it. Like there there's so many little factors that are that are happening that it's actually really hard to to figure out like how like which variables are are giving the outcome its character and the and the outcomes themselves don't feel as uh, dramatic, right? Because they're they're trying so hard to account for for all these like tiny little variables. What I like here is um they're they're pretty severe they're 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 either very punishing or very helpful uh and it's really it's easy for you to understand that and it's really down to how you manipulate that system uh that determines how things go for you i and i appreciate that um i think one of the things that this does well eventually i have some issues with the tutorial but the the way it's organized i think the second battle is basically the here's how terrain works battle and you get a i think you get a Pyrrhic army um and uh it it basically tells you okay now you get to organize your army here are these two hills in your way you have a bunch of phalanxes that won't necessarily fit through them uh so you're gonna want to try to put your light foot on the sides and uh to have your phalanxes try to go up the roads and uh that's not a very easy thing to organize so what I ended up doing was basically trying to send my phalanxes up the hill, and that battle turned into a real mess. And I was like, I learned my lesson pretty hard. I didn't necessarily learn how the interface was uh, was working so well, but uh, I learned that yeah, the rules that govern these things are relevant, and the various types of troops become combined with the very specific uh, rules governing how these things work you were just talking about rob uh that makes a combination that turned you know a battle that was probably designed for me to win easily into something that was pretty difficult uh i don't think it was uh the tutorial battles i think are 
surprisingly solid scenarios and i think one of the reasons they succeed as tutorials is exactly for that reason but they're real easy to botch like the the each of those tutorial scenarios is like okay so here's what you need to know about this setup here's what you got to consider and you're like got it cool totally on board with that and then invariably you're tempted you're looking at the map you're like oh that seems like an open flank i'll send my phalanx up there and in no time at all, you've got a real bloodbath on your hands. And I, I think it's actually interesting. The scenarios are both satisfying just as uh, war game scenarios. Like, these were not tutorial scenarios that I was, like, actively bored with. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of remarkable by, <laughs> by tutorial standards. <laughs> Especially uh, for the, war games. Yeah. But the other thing is they kind of seem to anticipate a slightly opinionated, bullheaded player uh, not fully grokking what the what the tutorial is trying to teach and trying to sort of go their own way and you learn like you can get away with that up to a point but also here's here are the key takeaways uh so i actually think those tutorials are are really kind of brilliant uh for that well in some ways the tutorials are brilliant yeah the the, the main issue that i have is that uh the tutorials have a thing where when you like hover your mouse over something, it gives you a pop-up. And when you start, what it immediately does is gives you like six pop-ups in a row before you even click on anything. And no, because you're just moving your mouse around. Because you're just moving your mouse like around. it's like having another pop-up. It's like, okay, you're trying to figure out how to move. Why don't we tell you exactly what warbands do? <laughs> yeah, they do need to chill a bit. Um, uh, but but in general, I think the structure of the tutorial works. There are just some quirks. So that if anyone listening decides to pick this up on the basis of Rob saying the tutorial for this war game is brilliant, it's brilliant with uh, with some butts. Return to battles for a moment. I think one of the other things, and this is familiar from Pike and Shot, uh, although the dynamics are a little bit different here. The most important thing in an army is sort of unit cohesion. And uh, one of the things you learn is that, like, for instance, the more a unit has been hit with ranged fire, uh, so basically concentrated fire from skirmishers, uh, the more likely it is to basically go down a step in terms of cohesion. So units start from, uh, I think it's just like uh, the steady order, and then they get to disrupted, uh, and then to fragmented, and then uh, down to broken and routing. Uh, and, and with each of those steps, the combat, their combat power diminishes, uh, and, and fighting begins to turn against them more and more. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that a broken unit is guaranteed to lose its next, its next melee round against an engaged enemy, but it does mean that like the numbers are going to st- the odds are starting to go against it. Um, the other thing is that. Well, I don't think skirmishers really have a deleterious effect on army cohesion around them. Uh, what does tend to happen is as you begin to break the enemy line and line units start to leave formation and start to uh, flee, uh, as they sort of run past friendly units, there's like basically a die roll 
that says whether or not that unit is also like there's a morale check on each of those units, a cohesion check on each of those units. And this is what sort of enables like a canine like uh, debacle for the Romans uh, is that once the leading edges of that Roman formation of really strong uh, legionary units with absolutely zero training, uh, once, once those guys start to start to feel shaken, uh, the entire army basically begins to come apart in this like fission reaction of, of panic. Um, the other thing that amplifies that is there's pursuit rules. And so cavalry, if they shatter an enemy unit, will start going into pursuit and it's double-edged. You basically lose control of them uh, while they go <laughs> while they go chasing uh, chasing down uh, routing enemy units. But on the other hand, uh, what ends up happening is they will continue to engage other units in their path. And so, like, once you've broken the edge of the enemy formation, what can end up happening is your cavalry start just running riot uh, in in the backfield. Uh, and so, again, you can have one of those uh, chain reactions uh, unfold. Every unit sort of has a bit of a limited pursuit, uh, but disciplined units will advance but not like pursue headlong. Undisciplined units, like the aforementioned Gallic Warband, will just decide to chase these guys all the way back to Rome. Uh, and that can be a problem too. Uh, you, you know, even when things are going your own way, you, you, even when things are going your way, uh, having your formation dissolve like that can really backfire on you. And again, like... With Pike and Shot, this was all very familiar. Uh, but with Pike and Shot, the formations were so densely packed that the reactions felt a lot more like a puzzle game uh, in some ways. Not like the scenarios themselves were puzzles, but like each time you're staring at like an enemy position, you really had to be thinking like, well, how do I? What's the key to this? How do I unlock it? Uh, here, it feels just like there's a little more uh, give and take. Uh, battles feel a little more pitched. Uh, units can rally and and come back into the battle. Uh, and so it's learning these sort of uh, push-pull dynamics. Uh, that's another key to sort of uh, getting a feel for this war game. And that's, again, something that feels pretty authentic to, uh, you know, to, to ancients, right? Uh, because so, so much of this is <laughs> commanders having dubious control of uh, various unit types. So tell us about elephants, Rob. You don't like the elephants? Okay. So let's get into the elephant here. That's how with the elephant uh, in the room. Yeah, <laughs> let's 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 address it. Uh, le, the 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 elephant enjoys a reputation in proportion to its size uh, as, as a military unit, but it just doesn't seem to work all that well. Like. It sort of seems like, and, and maybe the Carthaginians were the first people to really be guilty of this, but but it feels like a persistent theme. People want the elephant to be like a tank. It's like a proto-tank. Uh, but it just isn't. Because it's, it's elephants get scared. Elephants, <laughs> elephants panic. And when an elephant panics, and it inevitably will, because it's a big freaking elephant that like everyone's going to freak out and try to shoot, the moment the elephant panics, it begins running rampant through whatever is nearby. And in many cases, that's your own troops. See, I have not seen an elephant route through my own troops yet. I've seen elephants route, but not through my own troops yet. 
Well, it's a sight to behold, Troy. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me tell you, I was starting to feel a little casual about the elephants uh, because what I was finding elephants were useful for doing. Uh, and, and maybe this is maybe this is their use case. Elephants are really good at completely neutralizing enemy cavalry. Uh, horses spook around elephants. Uh, they, they don't know what the hell they are. It's sort of like, you know, when, when uh, medieval knights encountered camels, uh, the horses... Do not like animals they have not encountered before, especially don't like uh, weird four-legged ones. I don't like um, my cat. <laughs> but with the elephant, you can basically keep chasing enemy cavalry away and just neutralize it that way. What is really hard to have happen is sort of the rampaging elephant uh, return to the king scenario where this thing is just sort of steamrolling troops. That's not really going to happen. And if you try to make it happen, uh, yeah, there's a good chance that if your elephant breaks, it'll run off in a, in, in a random direction. And maybe it'll just run off into the, you know, the, the open fields uh, where it belongs and it's happy and doesn't really freak anyone out. But if it runs the wrong direction, uh, it is like it is like a tactical nuke of morale hitting your army. Uh, I have seen like I have had one one elephant spook and go tearing off uh, basically like parallel with my line, and in the space of a single turn. Six units that were winning the push, like they were all engaged. It was it was the central push of the infantry. It was a uh, lined up fight. Six units all went from steady to uh, disrupted, uh, thanks to one freaking elephant. And the center of my line just started to completely dissolve. Uh, so, are the elephants ever really worth it? I'm not sure that they are. Like, I'm anti-elephant. I don't care who knows it. Like. Just park it in the back. Okay, so your issue with the elephants is not these are modeled poorly in this game, but these are modeled as a problem for potentially both sides here, right? Yeah, but I like things to be predictable, Rowan. Like, I'm not saying this is a bad treatment of elephants. By all accounts... This is what happens when you bring an elephant to a sword fight. Like, it's, it's kind of a random, like, it, it's ancient commanders are like, man, I don't know how this is going to go. Let me inject this completely, like, random element of chaos uh, into this battle, and it'll be awesome. Um, but I, I, I don't gen- like that chaos. I'm generally anti-elephant uh, in war games, but I'm finding them actually quite useful in this game, probably ahistorically. Uh, I've had quite a bit of luck with elephants. I just what's your them. elephant magic? My elephant magic is to have you know two or three of them, line them up together, and charge them into the heaviest infantry they can find. Um, if, assuming there are no skirmishers in the way, if there are skirmishers in the way, you're screwed. Uh, skirmishers can really, really hurt elephants. Uh, but just charge, just keep charging into melee, just charge continually. Um, and something I was very lucky earlier tonight. I did an elephant charge into a Gallic chieftain, and I killed him. First hit. They lost, okay, they lost, that's excellent. They, they lost their commander-in-chief uh, and 200 men. It was a really, really good hit. They weren't disrupted. They were disrupted very soon after that, though. Um, and they're actually kind of good on the charge. Um, they have probably more staying power than I think they should, but they're also not you know as brittle as they are in a lot of other war games. So it's it's kind of nice they can nice they can stick around. Um, they model the 
they don't you know disrupt cavalry, but they do disorder them, which means that they will be less effective in, in combat, which is you know a nice simple effect and easy enough to model. Um, so when when the when someone finally makes the the Battle of Raphia for me, I look forward to having a whole lot of elephants lined up because uh, there's just so many elephants in that battle, um, and they're they're fun to move. They're just they're big and they're cool. Um, it's it's engines that I find useless. The catapults they sometimes give you in a quick battle, a custom no. battle. You can't move them. They've got a decent range, but they're only really good against densely packed troops. So if no phalanx comes in range, you're just prey to the first light cavalry that swoops around the flank and decides to pin you to death with javelins. Um, so I'm not big on the whole let's get a ballista out of the battlefield type thing. They also don't seem to damage unit cohesion significantly, which is what I would hope from them the most. You know, you'd figure a direct hit from one yeah. of those would be instant fragmentation since you only get one attack per turn. Um, but nope. They're, par- they're apparently most effective against warbands and phalanxes because they're more tightly packed. Or they're c- c- closely formed warbands because warbands can also be loosely packed. Um, but tightly packed warbands and phalanxes. Those are apparently the biggest victims of Ballista Head. Um, yeah, so I've had elephants, like, I've, I've tried charging them in, into infantry. Uh, I've had way too many cases where the infantry just kind of shrugged it off, uh, which is really upsetting uh, when a unit of, like, uh, Princopes just sort of turn and start hacking at my elephant. And I'm like, that's not, that's not how I'd react. Like... I think you should be more impressed. Uh, <laughs> haven't haven't dealt too much with uh, with with siege weapons. Uh, I have been surprised how often baggage trains uh, seem to come into play. Oh, do in, not get in me quick battles. Oh my god. Um, and I get that, like, you know, hey, like one of the 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 things that happened in 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 this period of warfare is like you did go after the baggage train. Like, you know, in, invading armies were exceedingly vulnerable. And there's a lot of battles that happen uh, sort of around, uh, you know, the, the camp and the logistical uh, equipment of, of an army. That said, um, I'm not are, necessarily sure they're that fun. These are really boring escort missions. I mean, you slowly move the baggage train to the other side of the map. And, oh, no, there's enemies on your left flank. Oh, there's enemies on your right flank. And all your soldiers are in the front. Good luck. Um, you know, it's you have the worst scouts in the world setting up for this escort mission, um, and it's you can generally avoid them in the quick battles. That's you, you, if you generate one, you say, "Well, screw this," and generate another one. But they pop up in the campaigns every now and then. The campaign will say, "Hey, your mission is to take this load of Pontic loot to the other side of the map," and it's not fun, but you've got to do it to progress through the campaign. Um, and that's not great. It's not. You know, there are. There are. You know, the, this is one of many battle uh, formations, and most of the time there'll be open battles. But baggage train escort is one of the battle modes. It's, I can't imagine anybody choosing it intentionally. It, is this something that seems to fit with the ancient motif? Because it, I don't really think it does. I know people harass baggage trains all the time. True, but what, were there pitched battles based yeah. on that of the sort that are, you know, relevant here? Uh, 
Where if we I'm were, having a hard time thinking of a lot of cases where like I mean, there's a lot of camp battles. I mean, there's, uh, there's camp battles, there's pitched battles, and there's ambushes. I mean, maybe in Marcellus's campaign in South Italy against Hannibal, he might have tried that sort of thing, but I can't think of a. And I'm sure Caesar would have encountered yeah. something like that in Gaul, but he just didn't write about it because he lost. <laughs> Too he many never, wagons. He, he never wrote about the stuff he lost. So, uh, Let's talk a little bit about this campaign. Uh, I haven't done too much with it. Uh, I'm mostly focused on uh, single battles mm-hmm. and, and the like. Uh, Troy, you put some time into the campaign. Uh, this is one of the things that you were uh, really putting time into uh, well, once I we select this as a topic. Because I have the time. And Yeah. <laughs> the campaigns are... there. It comes with uh, four or five campaigns, which are based around sort of a campaign for Caesar and one for Hannibal and one for Pyrrhus and one for Mithridates. And they are, they are not historical battles. So you're not going to be fighting Gagovia and Elysia and Sabus for Caesar. You're not going to be fighting Cannae or Trebia or Trasimene for Hannibal. You're going to be starting in where like your first battle for Hannibal is, oh, Hannibal started his career in Spain. Here's a battle against some Spanish guys. Then you win that battle, and you're so, congratulations, you've won the battle. Now pick some soldiers to leave behind for for the garrison, because you've apparently conquered a territory. No one told you this, but you conquered a territory. So now you have to pick some of your men to leave behind as a garrison. As you progress through each battle, you get sometimes you'll get a choice. They'll be like, do you want to choose... The next battle will have will require reinforcements. Do you want to have reinforcements from home that will show up late during the battle, or do you want to just get some locals to join you right now? And that will determine your army composition for that battle and other battles going forward. Uh, your army progresses with you. Um, your soldiers apparently gain experience and elan, though... Nowhere do I see any of these things explained in the manual or in the game. I don't know what Elon is or how it contributes to anything or how experience is allocated. It's a mystery. Um, so it's just a bunch of battles strung together until you get to the end of those battles. Now you you can call this a campaign if you like. I mean, you are you know leveling up troops. I guess you do get core core units uh, to develop and protect as you move through. And, you know, the garrison mini-game's a bit interesting because you have to, sometimes you only have to leave behind, you know, 200 points of men. Sometimes it's 500 points of men, uh, which can be really, really tricky uh, to work out the math on. I always leave the engines behind because screw those guys. Um, But in general, the campaigns aren't that interesting because they are so, they're just so detached from history. They're just, oh, then... Hannibal went to Gaul, your next fight's going to be against some Gauls, and there's no real historical tie to it beyond, this is where he was, so here's the army you're going to fight. Um, And it's like that through all of the campaigns, and it's not that... It's not interesting, it's not compelling, it doesn't have um, the... I mean, why is it... I don't think it's... It's just a bunch of custom battles stuck together... And I can build the custom battles anytime I want. 
and adding all the stuff in between doesn't make it a more interesting game. I would rather, you know, generate a custom battle that's really interesting. Like maybe uh, the Romans are fighting the Syracusans, and I can do that. The Romans are fighting the Syracusans in a hilly Mediterranean battle. I can set that up, and that's more interesting to me, this custom battle generator or random battle generator, than moving garrison troops back and forth and choosing between a couple of very pathetic uh, decision points. Um, I would have liked to have seen the campaign tied to a map somehow, because that's how I think about campaigns. Or if you're not going to do that, do it like being... Uh, Alexander Total War was not a good game, but at least it had all of the historical battles in it. And I think if you're going to be having Mithridates and Hannibal and Pyrrhus and Caesar, you can give us at least a few uh, historical battles to fight. So I'm kind of down on the campaigns because they're just packaging stuff that we can see other places. It feels like there's sort of a an ultimate general civil war issue here, where Uh-oh. I hated that campaign. What? Where you, you just you have a tactical engine, and the idea of a campaign appeals, but there is just isn't really a good way to make a campaign work. You could kind of say, "Here's how the campaign works," and this seems like it's conceptually better at a historical level than, uh, you know, now you're fighting this next historical battle even though you don't have the troops to actually fight it or now you're fighting this next historical battle even though it's on the total other side of the country uh but still like it's these these purely tactical games trying to attach campaigns becomes an issue yeah i'm wondering if there was a if there's a version of this that that really does work for you troy like i mean have 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 war games have, have any war games really cracked this? Like maybe Panzer General, uh, but that is sort of based on a really exaggerated uh, branching campaign structure that uh, is, is maybe still the the, the strongest approach. Uh, but we've seen it a bunch, and the farther you push that, the less convincing it feels. Uh, although that's more a, a, a question of scale. Like you can have an absolutely great uh, branching campaign. That is just focusing on, you know, say, you know, the, the second Punic War. Uh, you could absolutely do that. Uh, where things get kind of dumb is like, well, because you took uh, Paris in six turns, uh, your next scenario is conquering Scotland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think how this could work. I mean, the even the great battles of history games, the later ones, tried to have campaigns. And they were just stringing the historic battles together in really weird, weird ways that I never enjoyed very much. So I kind of ignored those and just played the battles over and over again. Um, string them together and give me points for doing really well, never quite fit. Um, there's also some other stuff going on that I, for, I forget. I think of the manual, it's been so long. Um, I, I just don't, I guess there is no need for a campaign. It's one of those things that at least not designed like this. Um, I don't remember disliking the... I haven't played a lot of the Pike and Shot campaigns. And they, I don't know if they're set up like this or not. I don't think they are. I think they actually have some sort of you know geographic base or something. Uh, but I'd have to double-check on that because I avoided it. Um, 
that is the other thing. Like a lot of the bigger battles do feel like right sized. Like I don't necessarily need that to carry over. Like if I want a big old uh, Carthaginian Roman battle royale, uh, I can I can do that. Yeah, Uh, and that's that's a good time. And then I can just have another good time with a different scenario later. I don't need that battle royale to set up like well because you've won that battle you've unlocked Elysia. Yeah. So it's I don't I don't know how this how it would work or if, like I would rather have more I would rather have more historic battles. I would always rather have more historic battles than have a you know tacked on campaign which I guess count which I guess tracks my management skills by deciding which troops to leave home and how to get rid of my engines as quickly as possible. Uh, I just um, I'll have to put more time into them. I think there might be something there I'm missing, but right now it's it's such a good basic war game. Had adding this a campaign that just has decision points and shuffling garrisons around doesn't really advance the design of the game or the cohesion of the game. I think in any meaningful way. I think I appreciate what they're trying to do. Uh, because you do have to, you know, build up a core of your core army has to get really, really good, and then there'll be elite units by the end. You have a whole lot of elite units to take on the big bad uh, in the final battle, I guess. Except for all the ones you had to leave behind as garrisons, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe the other element of this is that, like, with war games in particular, what's what's cool about a lot of campaigns isn't necessarily the strategic dynamic. Like I'm not looking I'm not looking for these to turn into like uh total war where, you know, I'm I'm scenario by scenario, uh, you know, because I won a skirmish here, I've conquered um you know, I, I, I've con- I've conquered the Peloponnese. Uh, I don't, I'm not really looking uh, for that, but it, we do like forming these attachments uh, to units. To, to you know, to to having that that sense that like ah uh, now now to send in uh, n- now to send in the guard basically right. Uh, that that is a fun thing that you know is uh, is I think you know sort of desirable, but a lot of times that comes with this really awkwardly structured campaign to create that connection with your army. Uh, it all feels just very forced in a way that, uh, you know, Panzer General basically gets away with it by creating this fantasy where uh, you have your own personal troops uh, that you carry with you. And then you get some scenario troops, but, like, you have your own army. Steel Panthers followed that mold as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, an awkward, it's an awkward fit for games like this. Uh, you mentioned there's a lot of community scenarios. Uh, there will be. There's already, I think, seven or eight. Most of them by one guy. Um, okay. But this the, the editor is quite handy. It's, I mean, it's beyond my skills. But I look at other uh, war game editors out there, and they're not as... Um, they're not as pick up and paint as this one seems to be, which I think is great. Um, there, a long time ago, when Rome Total War came out i i actually made a scenario uh, and it took me freaking forever to build uh this uh dioticai battle i paradic kikini humanese versus antigonus and it was took me forever to make it i could probably it took it took me days 
to get that all set up and all the elephants in place, me and my elephants. Uh, Got your elephants all in a row? uh, Well, they're on a diagonal on one of the flanks. Kind of in a row, but you getting know, your elephants in an echelon. Well, it's kind of kind of a refused kind of a refused flank on the on okay. the right. But anyway, uh, I could probably do that in this uh, engine in a much quicker time. I wouldn't have to because it's an editor. It's designed to be edited and edited, where Rome Total War was not. Um, so this is actually, I think, um, I mean, judging by the first field of glory and. All the stuff that's come out for uh, Pike and Shot, some of which doesn't fit at all. Like you can play Custer's Last, it's a Custer's Last Stand battle for Pike and Shot. It is awful, as you would I don't expect. Yeah, I want that. As you, but that's there a is little also, late. That's a little weird. Uh, but there's also a lot of uh, really good medieval uh, battles uh, in the medieval and Renaissance battles that are neglected. Uh, you can set up campaigns. In fact, when you make a scenario, they ask you to set it up as a campaign. So you can play through campaigns as uh, care as leaders. I, mean, I don't know if the battles are strong. If you can string together historical battles like that or not, I don't know. But I do expect, uh, probably you know, before the end of the year, that every major ancient battle for which we have good data, there will be uh, a copy of it, an unofficial copy, if... Uh, Byzantine and Slytherin don't get to them first. There's a lot of stuff between 280 and 25 BC. Um, you have quite a few well-documented encounters in there uh, from, you know, the wars against Pyrrhus to Philippi. Uh, there's a whole, in fact, I, I, there's are, there are two versions of Philippi you can download. One for single player, one for multiplayer. So if anyone's up for Philippi later tonight, I call Brutus. All right. So uh, in terms of where where we've come down with this game, um, I mean, I think the fact we're doing a show on it already speaks to like kind of how surprising this is because this was not on my radar uh, at all. Like this was literally something that uh, I think I saw you and Rowan talking about uh, in in chat the other day. And uh, I decided to get in on that on a lark and was sort of struck by how satisfying it is. I I think, like, I would, you know, there, there's quibbles with the interface, but I, but I think, like, I don't think it's persistent. I don't think there's, like, a persistent weirdness. Like, I don't feel like this game is fighting me. Like, once you understand, like, the language that it's it's speaking, like, it that interface kind of disappears, uh, right? Like, sort of the same thing as with Battlestar Galactica. Uh, it's superficially, like, there's there's some ways it breaks from convention that is a little clunky. You can learn to work within that, within those constraints. You can learn to work around the clunk and anticipate it. Uh, and then it's fine. And then you're just left with a really quick playing, um, you know, easy to read and and not too much of a commitment uh, war game. And I was really surprised by how enjoyable that is. It was, you know, in some ways the, um, you know, the, the best things of, of tabletop and minis war gaming uh, with, with none of the hassle. Yeah. I, I think this game is fast and fun and it may be a little bit too superficial as not i i like historic or the ancient historical war games but i'm not like huge into it like a civil war game 
but uh, I think if they can figure out how to kind of hang it together or if scenario makers can, I see myself going back to this, but uh, I'm, I'm just sort of waiting or wanting something that'll make it slightly more uh, grabbing. A campaign would be the obvious thing here, but I'm going to be playing with the army builder and the custom battle generator. I mean, for Age of Rifles, when they introduced a custom battle generator, Age of Rifles, I was in heaven. This is the same thing for me, only as my favorite period of history. Uh, ancient history is the best. So I'm going to be generating stuff for a while. I do have, you know, I've already mentioned my issues with the campaign and you know, and the interface isn't, isn't always great though as rob says you can uh figure it out once you know what it's trying to tell you to do i mean for and a war game for, for for a war game it's it's good uh, i have some of the battles some of the maps that are generated are really weird and i tweeted one out uh the other day of a lake stuck between two mountains in the middle of the map and it's like wow how do we do it? and it ended up being a really fun battle because i had to deal with the fact how do i fight with a lake and mountains in the middle of the map but you know uh, when one of the Matrix guys saw that, he said, yeah, if that happens again, point it out. We're still trying to tweak the map generator. Um, so that's so that's something they have to work on. And I do think it's under-documented in places. I mean, I know what a Thuriophoroi is, and I know what... Uh, you know, a lot of people look at this and say, well, what is Elon? What is experience? I have those questions. What does armored versus unarmored mean? Unless you dig deep into the uh, combat results tables... In the manual, you'll realize that armor is armor is what judges the effectiveness of missile weapons. Uh, didn't you say that you felt like the historical battles were a little too small? No, they're huge. Oh, okay. The historical thought- battle. I mean, well, the, the ones that I've played, there. I mean, Pidna was huge. I mean, it's it was nice. I looked at compared to the first Field of Glory, where the historical battles were like this. Doesn't feel like Pidna. Uh, that- that might have been what I thought I saw you talking about. Yeah. All right. No, yeah. No. This, That's they, good to know. Yeah, but it, it, the it's, epic battles live up to the name. I would say. Yeah, I mean, but they're not too epic. It's no. not like, uh, like recent vintage Steel Panther scenarios where somebody's like, oh, yeah. aha, I've done a one for one recreation of Normandy. Every single Sherman tank. Every single yeah. soldier. Today you move Bob. Um, they're they're really they're really big and they really feel like you are playing the battle properly uh which is kind of and even the even the layouts are relatively historical kare crassus's defeat they set that one up weird uh they have instead of you know starting you in his dead in his stupid idiot position uh in his you know in the square that got him killed uh they have him in a line uh where he's actually relatively effective if you keep your legions in a line you can generally scatter uh the uh horse archers reasonably effectively you'll probably still lose because the horse archers are given the ammunition level of plentiful and plentiful is not something you come across very often and in ammunition usually it says you have five turns of ammunition left not plentiful which means these guys are never going to run out which they didn't historically I think that battle's set up a bit weird, but generally I've been pretty pleased with the way the historical battles have looked. They are big, they are fun. I haven't tried Kanai yet, because I'm kind of scared. Kanai's great. Is it? 
Yeah, but it's can, can can you can you actually do what Hannibal did? Because that's my problem with most computer versions of Can I is that well, why would the Romans march straight towards me? Because you know. So there's definitely scripting, uh, forcing them into that funnel. Okay. Uh, so so basically, so okay, it sets you up in the inverted crescent. So Can I turns into a double envelopment, but the way some games. The the moment a lot of some games that like capture and I think Rome the the, the Rome Total War games have done this. Uh, I think they've modeled it twice, and each time they've gone the same direction. Basically, uh, it's a huge Roman army is fed into a giant kill zone and then just slaughtered. Uh, here you've got something that you have to work for a, a little more. Uh, you get cavalry positioned along the flanks. And then the main uh, Carthaginian line of battle is an inverted crescent, which means the, uh, the, the arc is toward the Roman legions. And there is a lot of Romans. Like, it's, it's an impressive number of, um, of Roman troops coming at you. It's like just a, a freight train of, uh, you know, Hastadian and, and Principes. Um, and I think it does do a good job of, like, Okay, why was that formation effective? Uh, because at the point of contact, the Roman legions start getting heavily engaged, and they start to bog, bog down, and they start to funnel themselves toward that point of contact, and they never engage the Carthaginian troops out on the flanks. And so you can sort of then march those guys out to the side for the envelopment. However, it doesn't... It's very hard to make Cannae feel like uh, the, you know, almost, God, what's the way to describe it? Like, the Roman army in Italy is basically wiped off the map in an afternoon. Uh, it, is, it is a complete catastrophe. And it is hard to get an outcome that feels that way. Uh, a lot of times what ends up happening is one wing goes before the other, and you get a pretty conventional for uh, for, for a field of glory too, a pretty conventional route that sort of starts from one side and runs like wildfire through the Roman army. It's tough to both have your cavalry decisively win their skirmishes to position for the final envelopment, and it's very tough to get uh, your wings out in an effective flanking position. Uh, that said, the Romans do. Uh, behave in such a way that like it feels like it recreates the strategy uh, described in the records. Maybe I will try that out. We should do some multiplayer sometime. Absolutely, but I'd be uh, you've mastered the elephant, uh, so you are. <laughs> we, we can uh, do it without. You elephants. are as a god to me. We can do it without elephants. We can have just scythe chariots. All right. Well, I'll take you up on that. Uh, but yeah. So if this uh, if this sounds like your if this sounds like your jam, uh, I would I would trust that feeling. Uh, it's uh, definitely, you know, it's it, you know by war game standards, uh, it's it's really good looking, uh, really easy playing. Uh, if you're not into war games at all, yeah, absolutely, this isn't gonna this is gonna work for you. But like, if you kind of like. If you like ancient warfare, but like you know, the Rome approach just doesn't do it for you anymore. You need something a little, uh, a little more authentic. I think this is a very good, a, a very good option, and uh, I'm definitely putting more time into it. If you want to take that step up from Rome and Attila, yeah. So basically, everyone but Fraser. Uh, 
<laughs> Three moves ahead, one step forward, Fraser. You're good. <laughs> All right. Uh, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Three Rooms Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threeroomsahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, Three Rooms Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Rooms Ahead. Until then... For Rowan and Troy, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.